Hey, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is Naga Notes. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. And today's interview, I think, is something really special. I got the chance to meet Craig Von Villig, who is our guest. He is friends with our founder, Safiso Rapinga. They both went to school together in South Africa, and now Craig is living stateside here in the U.S. in Northern California. And he's a soccer coach, but he's so much more than that. I think you're really going to enjoy the interview because it was inspirational to me. I'd like to say that I have a new friend out of it now. I think there's a lot of really cool symbiotic uh, stuff happening, and I'm I'm really excited to be a part of it. So as you listen to Craig talk about how he works with youth in the soccer uh, realm as youth athletes and whatnot and their families, I think you're going to find a lot of practical, useful information to apply in your own lives. So with that, I would like to give a thanks to our sponsors, one of whom is Audible. Audible's been with us for a really long time now. And if you haven't yet checked out Audible and their completely unmatched selection of audio content, please do. And you can do so with a free trial for 30 days, and it'll help benefit us as well as them and as well as you. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes. Download your uh, your free content. You get one free audiobook with that, even if you decide to cancel, which I'm pretty sure you won't uh, because their, their stuff's really good and their inventory is awesome. Then, uh, then you get to keep the, the download that you got. So audibletrial.com slash notes for a free 30-day trial. Um, check it out if you haven't already. And if you have, then send it to a friend and tell them to go to audibletrial.com slash notes. Also, Zephyr Wellness, company that I co-own here in Northern Nevada with uh, Lindsay Bell, who is my co-owner. She works tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure everything's running while I get to go out and gallivant around the country and uh, community and do things like podcasts. So uh, much thanks to Lindsay for helping keep Zephyr afloat during this uh, crazy year of 2020. We're very thankful to have the clientele that we do and for them continuing to trust us with their mental well-being. Check out zephyrwellness.org for more and also follow us on all the typical social media platforms, including this one, Naga Notes which we're proud to continue supporting and, and hosting. Without further delay, here's my interview with Craig Von Villig. Enjoy. Welcome back, Noggin Notes listeners, to the podcast. We appreciate your continual uh, following and downloading and support of what we're doing, trying to bring awareness to people and uh, maybe create a little more connectivity in the world. And uh, one of the proudest things I get to do is interview people from all over the world, uh, even though this man happens to be in the United States. He's originally not from the United States. It's Craig Von Villig. Hello, Craig. How are you? Hi, Jake. I'm great. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, Safiso, our, our founder of Naga Notes, set this up. You guys knew each other from back in the day somehow, huh? Yeah, good friends from uh, from Cape Town. Uh, so, yeah, he's obviously not there anymore either. So uh, we right. connected recently and, and excited to hear what you two have been doing and wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, for sure. So we're talking sports today. You happen to be involved in the soccer world. I love sports. I've been playing sports my whole life until my back started getting weird on me, but um, <laughs> such is old age, I guess. Um, but you, uh, you've worked at the professional level and you, you work with youth and now you're in Northern California. And um, I'd love to hear the story. Uh, you know, tell us, tell, us, tell us how you ended up coming here and what your passions are and all that stuff. Awesome. Um, so I'm originally from Cape Town, South Africa, a beautiful part of the world. Um, and I guess throughout my high school life, I realized that I wanted to be involved in coaching or in sports in some capacity. Uh, I went to college and, and studied sports science um, and then got an incredible opportunity. I think I'd barely turned 21 yet um, to work at uh, IX Cape Town, which is uh, one of the major clubs in, in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, in the professional realm and they have an awesome uh, academy that kind of develops kids from the ages of 11 up to 19 and gets them into the first team um, so yeah I worked I worked there for for eight awesome years um, and and then got an incredible opportunity in in Boston to work um, at a club called GPS um, and worked there for five years and and now I started um, working in San Jose California Earlier this year, in the middle of uh, COVID, is when I started my job. So that's kind of been my my journey in a nutshell. That's wild. Let's talk about that COVID stuff and how it's impacted your job and uh, sports altogether. We just just this week, uh, Nevada opened up. <laughs> I should put an asterisk on that. Opened up youth sports. Uh, basically, it's just like 
baseball, softball, and anything where kids don't touch each other. Um, and all the other touching sports are like off limits. And then they still have to have these safety plans, which it almost makes it sound like they're not going to do it anyway, because the, the, the obstacles are too overwhelming and too restrictive. But how's it been in your world? Wow. Uh, so I started the job in February. Um, and I think after three weeks we had to shut everything down. Um, and then we went through a plan of trying to, uh, kind of do home programs for, for all the, the players from March through June. Um, and this just included Zoom conversations with them kind of three times per week and, and finding ways to engage with them and, and keep them active and try to relate it as much as possible to soccer. Um, but obviously understanding what they're going through, where they're at home, they've effectively lost their any connections they had with friends um, at school um, and their teammates in the soccer realm. Um, and then we got to this phase kind of in June where we are allowed to, to be on the field, but everything is socially distant, right? So, so it's no contact, um, which is a whole different sport. It's not even soccer. Um, and just as coaches, I guess, trying to figure out ways to ensure that we can uphold the restrictions while trying to um, work with the players and, and at least get them onto the field and enjoying what, what they do. Does that cause more problems than it solves, or are you still better off now doing literally something than anything, than nothing, I mean? Mm -hmm. I think I look at it in a in the way that the kids had all of this, I guess, taken away from them is the way that they would look at it at their age, right? Sure. Um, and so right now they're still in California, they're still on Zoom for their class. Um, mm -hmm. And if we do the same with, with soccer, it got to a point where they just kind of totally dropped off. They weren't engaged. They weren't enjoying it. And it limited their physical activity. At least now, if we can't be um, maximizing their, their development in a soccer sense on the field, at least they're out, they're active, they're around teammates. Um, and we just use that as a tool to make sure that they're, <clears throat> they're active and, and they're working and they're actually setting some, some specific goals towards what, towards what we can do instead of what we can't do. Yeah, that's critical, and I, I don't want to soapbox uh, here at this point, but um, the number of negative health outcomes it because of the lockdowns, I'm not going to blame it on the pandemic. It's not the pandemic. It's the lockdowns because of the response to the pandemic that have mm -hmm. separated everybody and isolated them have been, uh, we're, we're going to be cleaning up the, the disastrous mess from that for years and years and years to come, and we've already got early metrics returned for the listening audience, you may not know that uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, actually does um, uh, individual household polling uh, around the year about depression, anxiety, and then they combine them, depression or anxiety symptoms. And so they just take these these this straw poll, if you will, across a broad variety of households in the U.S., and they, they come up with some uh, figures. In 2019, in the springtime, we had about 11% of the population had either depression or anxiety, and then the depression anxiety broke out to like 4% for anxiety, 7% for depression, something like that. Well, this year, in 2020, in the springtime, um, we had a four- to five-fold increase depending on age demographic. So the 18- to 29 uh, demographic uh, in the, the later part of July, which was the most recent data that I, that I saw because I, I pulled this stuff in August, 55% of Americans 18 to 29 had either depressive or anxious symptoms. Uh, compare that with a year earlier when it was about, you know, 10 or 11%. It's like, it's more than half the country. It's crazy. And in case anybody's interested, I, I actually looked at the, the, the plot chart of how the, the trend line went. And it went up, obviously, in March. And then it dropped a little bit in May and then went back up in June. And I was like, what happened in May? And it was phase one. We started to reopen things, and then we got the surge, and then, oh my gosh, shut everything down again, and then everybody's depressive and anxious symptoms spiked again. So the hope here is that when, even if kids are isolated for purposes of school and, and you know, adults are isolated for purposes of work and that kind of stuff, if we can at least introduce some activities that, yeah, maybe they're not colliding on the field, you know, and we're going to keep them safe and socially distant and all that stuff at least they're seeing each other. And I, and I yeah. think that's hopefully going to drop some of those um, self-reported statistics on the, on the depressive and anxious symptoms that we're seeing. And I got to believe that's true worldwide. It's not just the U S I just happen to live here and know where to pull those data. But 
um, good to see that the kids are starting to, to interact a little bit again. You work with youth primarily, yeah, right now? Yes, at the moment I do, yes. Are you seeing that they're um, they're getting some relief from this, or are you guys seeing like they're still sort of on edge and they, they're not having a good time? I think it's it's shifted towards the, the case now where it's probably the single most, um, I guess, uh, activity that they look forward to. Um, getting out of the house, getting away from school, their parents – maybe their parents also try to get them out of the house and force them out to make right. sure that they attend all the time. But I think from, from engaging with them and getting to see them, it feels to me like they're excited to be there. They're really happy that they get this opportunity um, and, to, and try to make the most out of it. Um, I guess they've been brought up through this culture, if you want to call it of everything leads to the game, everything leads to the tournaments, everything leads to the performance element. Um, and right now we're trying to get them, at least in the language we use and, and the, the focus that we have as coaches to make sure that it's focused on the day-to-day, like what can we achieve today and take it away from, hey, let's look forward to the tournament that's happening in three months, right? Right now we have no idea when we could possibly play any games, uh, let alone tournaments, so we're trying to change the conversation and just focus on the day-to-day, and I guess that's also helped them to be more process-orientated. That's a really fascinating point that you just made there and I don't know that I ever fully wrap my head around that um it's it's not unique to sports I don't think I think there's there's outcome or performance-based metrics in all facets of life um and one of the things I fight as a clinician is getting people to slow down and be in the process and I appreciate you saying that like you know process oriented instead of outcome or task oriented right um you we we have all different techniques by doing by way of we can do this uh mindfulness meditation uh, anything that slows us down and brings us into the present moment um but wow what a what a concept right like you go play sports for the pure enjoyment of it i mean i could give personal testimony that my adult hardball league got shut down this year and we were just we still went out to the field and gathered and we we hit and we played inter-squad scrimmages and we didn't keep track of score we just played to play it was awesome um, but wow, what a, what a shift. And I don't think I really ever, uh, considered that until just this moment. Huh. Yeah. I think it's been a 15 year process for me to understand it fully. Um, coming from that professional world where of course it is results driven, right? Because, because the, the team has to perform, it has such a windfall from money to marketing to, to contracts, right? To livelihood, I guess, at the professional level, but at that club, as I said earlier, we had 11-year-olds up to 19-year-olds who were trying to get there through a youth system, right, which isn't too different from what I'm in right now. And even then, you could say results were important because the players needed to make sure that they're performing at a high level to move up the ranks and hopefully by the end of their youth career at 19 get offered a professional contract, right? That's where it's different from, I guess, America where they look to go to college first, right. um, so you would think that that was more the culture there was more results oriented. I get here and working with kids, I guess anywhere from the ages of eight to eighteen, getting into the college process. Um, and even at that age group of eight years old, it is wholeheartedly results uh, focused, and that comes from a long line of, I guess just what sports is like here at the moment but it's the behavior of the parents on the sideline it's from the conversations those parents have with their kids after the game they're not asking you know not saying things like i loved watching you play they're just like i can't believe we lost and can't believe you didn't score that goal and it becomes so focused on that at such a young age and and then it just spirals out of control that by the time they're 16 they've been exposed to this for eight or nine years how do they change how do they get into the process um, oriented phase. So, so yeah, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey, I guess, trying to get to an understanding of, first of all, engaging with the parents for them to understand and empower them with some tools. So they understand what we are trying to achieve as coaches and explain why that works for the players. And then over time, just keep dripping through, through our language, through our conversations, um, that we need to be more process based for the players so that, when they are getting into those more, the more pressured times, I'd guess between 16 and 19, where they're trying to go to college, they're trying to get as much exposure as possible. 
that they are at that stage already process focused instead of um, outcome focused. You know, I, I'm thinking back, and when I was a kid, so I'm, I'm 42. So this was in, in the you know late 80s, early 90s. I was a child. Travel baseball was not really a thing. Travel basketball was not really a thing. Travel soccer was not really a, th- a little bit more of a thing. Um, and it's not like it didn't exist. But sometime after I graduated high school, um, 1996, and then my brother was 1999, and it was somewhere in those three years, travel ball started to become a thing. And then in about the next five to seven years after that, it really took off. And since then, it's become a full-blown business, like full-blown business. And I got to believe that the innocence of youth is being disturbed, if not altogether robbed, because what I'm learning now, and my kids are only five and three, so they're not quite there yet. But what I'm learning through some other friends who have kids who are a little bit older, 10, 11, 12 years old, is that there really isn't a way for kids to play youth sports now just for the pure enjoyment of it. And where it exists, it's pretty watered down because the the, the elite athletes have gone to do the, the pay-for-play club ball where they, they basically play the sport 11 months out of the year. And that bothers me on some level, uh, many levels, I guess, but... Um, I'm wondering what your take is on that. If it's if it's still advantaging the children the way that it used to. Yeah, uh, my exposure to it is that every single town would have an organization or a, a, a local um, soccer um, association, and they would have soccer from ages of I guess like three or four until twelve, um, and those are all run by volunteers and parents, right? Mm-hmm. And so the first part there is you would hope that those would be some positive role models that would just get them to love the sports. And they may not have the skills to coach them and improve them that much, but just get them sure. exposed to a positive environment. And, and what I've seen even at that level is that all the parents had known was this win, win, win uh, kind of mindset. Um, and it's maybe the way that they were when they were at college or the way their parents were. Um, and so they don't know how to switch that off and they don't know how to, to make sure that, the messaging they're delivering to those kids is not um, tailored in that way. So I think even at that, at that level where it's not pay to play, uh, it's not as competitive as the higher levels. You would hope that that's just where it's love of the game, enjoy what you do. Um, and there are definitely some really good parents out there who want to learn more. Um, they, they do want to be positive role models, but it's few and far between in my opinion. And then you get to the level where it's, it's club soccer. And right now everybody wants to be involved in club soccer as young as possible. Parents are getting them in at nine or 10 years old. And then by the time that you're in your, I guess, 11 or 12, where you're really playing competitively, you're already paying anything between $2,000 and $4,000 a year, excluding any travel, just to be involved in this, this high pressured environment where it becomes more results centric. Um, so yeah, it's it's a crazy thing to see. And I mean, the club that I worked for in Boston was one of the biggest in North America. We had franchises in 26 states. Um, and just being in different fields all over the country just gets you just get to see how how damaged the system is. Yeah, it sounds really judgy to say that that it's damaged. Um, but you know, for, for somebody who works with youth and um, who has been in education and um, you know still isn't around education as a whole, I I am concerned that we're stealing children's innocence from multiple inputs and avenues. One being what we just described, but also there's there's the social media technology that's accelerating their exposure to things that are just developmentally not appropriate, whether it be musical lyrics or um, videos or violence or whatever it is that it's just it just seems like we're we're getting younger and younger with the level of exposure we we are giving our kids to adult things and um and i wonder what the long-term effects of that are going to be but in the meantime i guess i want to steer the conversation back to you know how you're helping them uh, cause mm-hmm. you, you do that. You, you focus on the mental side and I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Austin Byler, who's been on this podcast a couple of times. He works with the baseball, uh, folks, you work with soccer folks. It sounds like you're doing something very similar where you're trying to bring an appreciation for the sports so that you're not burning out the children. 
Um, talk, talk a little bit about how you do that. Yeah, I think first and foremost is to try to almost create this environment around whatever team that I'm working with. Um, and so, you know, I worked with an incredible team in Boston for four years and it was a, a girls team and I worked with them from when they were freshmen until they were seniors in high school. And I think first and foremost is just to make sure that the entire environment around them um, was protected, if you want to call it that. Uh, just constant communication with the parents, um, to make sure that, you know, in the two hours that I'm working with them, the messaging is then continued for the 22 hours that they're not with me That's every cool. single day. And I think that is probably the, the best thing that, that you can do from the start is just to make it transparent, to be completely authentic with the parents who have such a big influence on them um, and to explain and make them a part of the process um, all the way through. And I think that was, is probably what I would tie to the success of, of that kind of program, if you want to call it that. It's just, you know, make the parents part of it. Don't treat them as customers because they're paying for their kids to be there. It's make them part of the process. Have them understand what you're trying to achieve so that the conversation in the car is not about the results or not necessarily about their performance. It, it, it kind of stems back to like, what are we trying to achieve over extended period of time? You know, um, where were you a month ago versus where you are right now? Um, and I think that's really important just to make them part of the process. I think that's the first thing. Yeah. Um, as a, as a family systems clinician, I really love hearing that. Um, Zephyr wellness, uh, has its intake packet right and it's got the consents uh and you sign all this stuff and one of the paragraphs in there basically reads we don't do fix my kid uh we say you as the parents are the executives of your home and um essentially as you go so go your children so we require you to be involved in treatment because you know as awesome as i think i am as a clinician i'm only with your kid an hour a week you know at most uh somebody else is around on the other 167 so the fact that you said two versus 22 a day i love that because i i say that all the time um you got to take what we give you and you know implement it into life if you want them to be successful so uh how often are you checking in on the desire of the children themselves to keep playing as opposed to maybe being some sort of functioning arm of their parents desire to keep playing yeah um, again, I think it, it's part of, of what the whole, I guess, recipe, if that's what you want to call it. I, th my passion is relationships, right? So relationship driven, driven, values driven in terms of the way that I coach. And I think that the thing that I am most fond about with through all of the successes, if you want to call it that with, with the teams I worked with is the relationships that I've built through that. So I think that is so vital. And so when I look at it, it's being, vulnerable enough and authentic enough uh, and present enough in, in every interaction that I have with the players as individuals and as a group um, to build these relationships. And I think when you get to that point where you have real relationships with, with the, the players, then the conversations when you're checking in with them uh, and have one-on-one -on -one conversations weekly um, or, you know, every couple of weeks based on, on the situation, I think those conversations are, are deeper. It's not just, house things, house things at school, house things at home, they, they feel that they have the uh, availability to kind of talk to you about things on a deeper level. And if you understand their family life, you know the parents, you have a relationship with the parents, you can kind of paint this picture of like, okay, I understand that this player is going through that at home and this family situation um, versus another player. And I think it, it's all of these little um, puzzle pieces that make such a big difference. While you're trying to make sure that the team functions as a whole, you're still trying to make sure that they're achieving the goals on the field, on the training field, uh, game day. You know, you don't you don't rock up to lose. You don't put all this time and effort into something to lose or for things to go badly. You're still working towards that common goal. But at the same time, it's all these little puzzle pieces on the side that make up the end result, if that's what you want to call it. And that requires a, a significant amount of attention to detail with what's going on in your kids' families and that kind of thing. It's yeah. uh, I know better but I'm going to ask this anyway. It sounds exhausting. It sounds like it would just be easier to show up, give your little speeches, do your chalkboard stuff, and then go home. But is it really? No, I think it's rewarding. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's the only way that you can really delve into what it means to be a coach in that environment. You know, it, it, it is, you completely submerge yourself into everything that that, is, that includes. Um, and yeah, 
what it, when it's fatiguing is when you have to do with a number of different teams and maybe you're stretched in terms of your time and your attention. Hmm. Um, and I guess for me, like heartbreaking to kind of move from that kind of environment to another environment um, in that time because, you know, at that stage, those are like daughters to me in, in that sense, right? Um, in terms of the way that you work and, and that group when you – work with that environment for a number of time and in my case four years that's a family right the Absolutely. parents the the players their their extended family uh you know when we travel to away tournaments you have you know 18 sets of parents plus the players all traveling to to events together and so you have this just like family of like 50 people going all over the place um but and but that's also what makes it worthwhile that's what makes it rewarding it's like being that family environment um and i think you you can do nothing but do your best in those that situation it, I can tell by the way that you're smiling as you're talking that it seems like you just you draw energy from it. It's not like you're you're exhausting energy. Yeah. You're you're actually refueling yourself through this process. Um, share with the listening audience what that what that's like for you. And if and if you've always been that way, then that's cool. But like, was there ever a point where you turned a corner where you had to like kind of relax into? knowing everything about everything all the time and, and then realized, Oh wait, actually this is much easier. Yeah. I think it's been a journey of understanding that I'm wired for like servant leadership in that sense. Um, and looking to try and serve others, you know, um, I was always energized by people and, and friends and, and a social setting, um, and sports specifically, because that's all I can remember that I did when I grew up. Um, but I think over time, as much as I was passionate about sports, it was trying to understand like, what am I wired towards? Like, what is, you know, what is my calling if that's what you want to call it? Um, and so I think, um, my first exposure to that was definitely at Ajax where yes, I was working with a, with a professional team and here I am this 21, 22 year old as a strength and conditioning trainer for a professional team that's flying all over the country and traveling to different countries in Africa to play competitively with players who played for Liverpool and played in Europe and, and played for the South African national team. Right. And some of these, some of these guys are like, 38, wow. 100 yeah. caps for the national team. And here I am, this 22-year-old out of college. Like, what can I offer? Right. Um, and I think I think in one sense, that um, almost forced me along the route of having to make sure that I am real. I'm not trying to tell them what to do. I'm trying to build a relationship to show them how I can help them and be a part of that, that journey for them. Um, but at the same sense, while all of those exciting things were happening and 50,000 um, fans in a stadium uh, watching a game, my joy came from working with the kids in the evening, right? So I would work with the professional team in the morning and obviously travel for on the weekends for the games. But our youth teams would, from uh, U11 to U19, would be training in the evenings. And I w was involved in both. And I think being able to see this 12-year-old kid who's coming from a really underprivileged environment, um, striving to become a professional, one, because they have this desire to be a professional, but two, probably because that's their only way out. That's their only way out to make mm -hmm. it into this crazy world because, you know, their parents' uh, generation maybe weren't in, uh, educated and didn't have exposure to, to good opportunities through, through work. And so them becoming a professional player at the age of 18 is probably the first time that their parents are ever going to own a home or ever get, you know, the financial uh, setting that, that that kid wants to provide for them. And I think seeing that spark in that player and trying to – literally consume myself with anything I can do to help that kid meant more to me when I was starting my journey than working with these professional players that are traveling around the country. And then you're involved in like the glamour side of the sport. Uh, explain your understanding of servant leadership. That's not a term you hear very often. Um, I, I guess from my point of view is, is trying to make sure that, that I display incredible values first and foremost in terms of the way that I live my life and the way that I, that I um, kind of work with other people. But I feel that my value is in serving others and, and leading them through whatever process they're going through. Um, you know, if I was to put that in, in a nutshell, I think um, serving them in a sense that um, am I equipped enough in, in all the aspects that's required to, <coughs> to, to serve them from a coaching perspective, from a friendship perspective um, in that environment. Uh, I think that's really the way that I look at it. Service is uh, an interesting concept. I think we can uh, conceptualize it in a number of ways, but the way that you're presenting it is uh, it's an honor 
to do work for others in order to watch them grow. It's it's a very one down uh, humility driven approach. It's not like you're there's this weird power differential where you're on top lecturing people on what to do. It's like you you're going a, a couple steps beyond meeting them where they are, which you have to do initially anyway. But mm-hmm. you're you're like, no, I'm going to work with you. Also, I'm not going to work next to you. I'm going to work yep. with you, right? And I'm definitely not above you. Um, that's that's really remarkable. I think it's critical if we're going to learn how to be leaders that we have to um, we have to do what's expect what we're expecting of others. We ourselves have to do, and mm-hmm. um, you know, showing it first is is crucial. Good on you for, yeah. for doing that. Yeah, and I think if you have that attitude um, and you understand that, you know, the only way to, I, I guess, um, fulfill that purpose is to make sure that you're as equipped as possible to do that, right? To have an understanding of the people that you work with and the environment that you're in. But then you have, at least with me, is like you have the desire to upskill yourself in any aspect um, possible to make sure that what I'm doing with them, the service that I'm providing to them um, is that I'm, I guess that I've improved myself in every aspect of my coaching to make sure that, that I'm providing that service as best as possible to them. And if you do that long enough, it eventually makes you elite. You, know, you become, <laughs> yeah. you become exceptional because you're so improved, but you're doing it not because you want to become elite. You're doing it because you need to just be better be- for everyone. Right? Yeah. hundred percent. And I, I think, you know, as much as, that's obvious at the professional level that you always want to become better at, at what you do and what you know. I think it, for me, it became more apparent to working with the youth. Like, am I really, do I really have all the answers yet? Do I really understand the nuances of all these aspects to provide these incredible people with everything that they need? And I think that's having that mentality makes it much better as a youth coach. Um, yeah. Instead yeah. of just like, I have all the answers, I played at a high level, this is what you should be doing. I think just being hungry to always want to learn is really important. Well, you're not you're not cloning a bunch of other younger Craig Von Villags. You're trying to make them the best they could be just simply through your, you know, your experience and your lens. But you're not trying to like corral them into being what you think they should be. Exactly, exactly. One thing that I always like to say is like, my goal with the teams I work with is like, who each of those individuals become as a result of the chase. Mm. Yeah. Real growth and opportunity, not just field measured growth and yeah, opportunity. That's exactly. super cool. I'm gonna yeah. sh- I mean, I want to shift gears a little bit here because, you know, this is a mental health podcast. And we're going to talk about a little bit of mental health stuff. Um, you have experienced some people in your life who dealt with mental illness and they were struggling pretty significantly. And I guess that's probably what piqued your interest and in what, what Safiso wanted to get you on board with. Not only just the, the, the psychological aspect of sports, which is cool. I love talking about leadership and stuff, but specifically as it relates to the, the profession of mental wellness, um, share some of what you were sharing in the beginning before we started recording, please. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think my first real exposure to it was I had a girlfriend between the ages of when I was, I guess, 21 and 24. Um, and she, kind of went into a depressive state, I guess, the the last year that we were together. And I think just how, at the time, you know, if I'm blunt about it, like how taxing it felt for me just trying to support um, and understand what she was going through without being exposed to previously. I think that was my first understanding of like what it was like for for people because obviously at the time when you have someone you care about you try to understand like what is it and why are you sad and you know why are you starting to get out of bed in the morning or what can I do what how can I fix this and especially I guess with the personality that I have is like I want to help I want to help like I want to understand and and that's probably made it worse I guess at the time and then not too long after that uh, one of my best friends committed suicide um and yeah I I remember the moment very clearly I was it was actually um it was like what would be the dream day in my profession. Like we, the first team of Ajax were playing a, a uh, international friendly, if you want to call it that um, against Manchester United, uh, you know, the, the massive English club. And, and that was, that's my, the club that I'd loved since I w- could remember, like since five or six years old, that was the club that I, that I supported. Um, and this day they were in Cape Town. We were going to play in, in front of a sold out stadium. Um, and this incredible time that I get to experience. And I remember, <laughs> at the hotel before the game, we're having a pre-match uh, meal. And I got a phone call from another really good friend of mine telling me what had happened. 
um, and the rest of the day is a blur. Like I remember nothing except that phone call. But those two people, I guess, who were super close to me kind of opened up my curiosity, if you want to call it that. Um, but also knowing that I need to be understand this more and I want to be more prepared so that when I have those interactions with friends or family, but also the players, I guess, in the future I'm going to work with, that, that I have some tools just to to be there, to be present, to understand possibly what they're going through. And obviously guide them in the right direction if they need professional help but just you know i'm going to be closer to them than a professional is at the time so just understanding what's going on around them where are you with your own personal competence as far as what you used to know what you know now where you'd like to be and the role that you want to play for your your the people you mentor you know the, the players but also your your friends and family yeah i think 10 years worth of learning and studying and listening um better than i was at that stage um but i think right now i i um i gravitate towards understanding the mental game a little bit more um you know from a sports point of view yes but also from a from a, a people point of view it's just that the conversations that i like to have with with people colleagues uh, with the podcast i listen to all of those things a lot of it is tailored towards I guess, mental health and psychology. So just trying to learn those things along the way. Um, I, having two really good friends who are professionals in the, in the industry and really trying to tap into to them as resources and try to understand it um, at, at a deeper level. I think, I think it's been 10 years worth of progress to understand that um, at a deeper level so that even in my friendships, even in those closest to me, is that I can offer a different perspective because I have more awareness about, about what they're going through. That's critical. It's just having an awareness and being able to um, know what you're doing. My, my favorite word in counseling is intentionality. Know why you do what you do. It puts yeah. you in charge of your behaviors at that point. If you can reasonably know what the words that are coming out of your mouth and what purpose they serve and the, the behaviors you choose and that kind of thing. And I think the idea here is like, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so you're like always growing and always learning. Um, but as long as you can be intentionally present, intentionally directive, when you give somebody a suggestion or send them somewhere, um, that's when you can create the most opportunity or the biggest opportunity for the most benefit. Um, so what I'm hearing from you is, is you've gone through this growth process, you've become more personally aware of how you tick, but also how other people tick. And then that makes you a little bit more flexible to to serve people's needs in a different way. Uh, so the more you consume, uh, the the broader your uh, ability becomes to to do that. Um, what what are some ways that that's manifested in your life in the last few years as you've gone through this process of growth? Like you, sure, <laughs> so many. Um... I mean, I think first and foremost is just as you explain is the why you're being intentional. It's also about being humble enough to understand that you don't have the answers um, and, and vulnerable as well, right? I think that's important as a as a leader to understand that you don't have the answers and being vulnerable to be like to self-reflect on, on what you're delivering and and then understand. Okay, I need to understand this more. I need to I need to research. I need to speak to people. Um, but I mean, I, I guess some of the the main ways i've i've seen it manifest would be um would be the conversations that i have with individuals over time um i as i explained earlier there's so many different um, aspects that they're exposed to from the pressure of college showcases like them thinking that one game is going to dictate their future because the college coach saw me on the side of the field and i'm going to get this like college scholarship to go and that's the reason my parents have paid like ten thousand dollars over the last eight years for me right so you have that um end of the spectrum um and then you have the end of the spectrum where it's uh people especially i guess in the girl setting are struggling with things in school and socially because all the pressures that they go through through social media and peer, peer pressure and just like i guess where we are as a society right now um and i think my journey for the most part has come down to like how can i help them in each of those individual situations um and what tools can i can I provide? And a lot of it I think is, um, is, as I said earlier, is just being process oriented. Like what can they focus on in this minute in time? Like what can they control? And I think that's really important. Um, and making sure that, that, uh, I, th I think the way that I like to deal with it, if I look at a, a training session is like, like, 
instead of focusing about about the end goal, it's like what are the micro pieces that make up that end goal over time, right? So just focus on the habits, the behaviors, the recipe day by day, minute by minute that eventually lead to that outcome. So obviously that's more performance orientated, but I guess I also look at it from a, when they're dealing with things off the field is like, what can you control right now? Right. And what attitude could you have in this exact moment that can help you deal with this situation? Um, I think that's the way that I like to look at it. And again, being relationship centered, I think trying to take the time to be present, understand that I don't have the answers, but really listen and maybe just help them get that off their chest. And then maybe in the background, like I'll do as much as I can to try to put those pieces together. You, it's amazing the parallels between you and Austin and some of the other really important people in my life who I really look up to. And I've known you for all of you know, 40 minutes now or something. But um, I'm noticing this this theme that I want more of for myself, which is that you don't get involved in the distractions that often trigger our limbic systems. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's like I'm not hearing a lot of like, yes, but for this obstacle. Yes, but, uh, this, this thing that's annoying me, like I, all I'm hearing is compassion, energy, um, habits, practice, servant leadership. Like there's no, there's no pressure of politics. There's no like what's going to happen in response to COVID. Um, the you know the the money in the business like we address that but because it's a thing and you got to pay attention to it but but the the most enjoyable people I've talked to recently are the ones who are just like positive energy how I'm going to impact somebody positive energy how I'm going to impact somebody did you are you aware of that like did you practice that like how did how did this come about uh I guess just over time seeing how um like where my energy came from. My energy came from working with people and trying to help them get where they want to get. Um, and it, it was never about me. And I think seeing that and being aware of that over time then made me realize like, hey, this is what I'm wired to do. Like this is this is like what brings me the most joy. It's not about the titles or the awards or those other things. And I think the tough part for me being in this industry, I think the, the thing that really gets to me and that I want to also have an impact on is that, I think coaching in a lot of realms is like an egocentric uh, industry, right? Sure. Uh, coaches, coaches think that they have their answers all the time. And I guess that's the, you know, the old school mentality of do as I say um, kind of process. And even now being exposed to the youth levels, you still see that every weekend, you know, in the sidelines in terms of the way that they, that coaches who are role models, who are these people of authority, but people with such great power to impact kids um, it, the way that they act. Um, and I think again, just making sure that I'm following the way that I'm wired. I'm passionate about people and passionate about relationships and I'm passionate about making a difference through, I guess, like service servicing or servant le- leadership, as I said earlier, um, and just following that, right. Uh, making sure that, you know, there'll be times where you're in, um, national championship games. There'll be times where you're exposed to, you know, 30,000, uh, in a, in a, a soccer stadium and it's very easy to get drawn by all these distractions and, and the glamour of it, but just staying true to who you are and always come back to that. Like, Hey, this is where I get my joy. And this is what I like the legacy that I want to leave is making sure that I've impacted people by helping them become better, helping them have the resources to, to along their journey, I guess is, is kind of where, where it sits for me. So what bothers you? And how do you deal with stuff that brings you stress and pressure? Because you don't, you don't seem like that kind of person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think what bothers me, what I said earlier, was the way that, that I guess so many coaches impact so many kids, right? Um, so how, do, how did I fix that? Is I had a good opportunity at the last club I was working with to, to be part of coach education. And I also did push to try and be in, involved in that environment. And then as part of that is like, I try to make coaches more aware, like what is your role? Your role is to try and help, help children, help kids, help youth. Yes. In soccer, but, but you could be the single most biggest influence in them because they love the sport so much. Right. Yep. So, so I think putting myself in that environment where I am one person overseeing 80 coaches and trying to have those conversations and being vulnerable. Hey, I don't have the answers. I'm not going to come here and tell you how to do the X's and O's of, of, 
as a coach, but I am going to try to help you understand and reflect a bit more on who you are as a person and what role you play in, in players' lives. Um, and I think that's the way that I can solve it, right? There's a great organization in America called uh, Positive uh, Coaches Alliance, right, uh, PCA. And they do some great work in trying to make sure that that people who are involved in the industry understand their role. And I think for me, that's something that I try to make sure that I'm a part of the solution. Can I help coaches be more vulnerable and aware of the messaging they're delivering, the mannerisms they have towards kids so that they that we can have an exponentially big impact over all the kids in the area? Um, I think that's a big thing for me, you know, when I think about what bothers me. There's a paradoxical irony in that when you work so hard to be about others that eventually you yourself become the pe- the person people want to be around and then it does become about you because <laughs> it's like oh i am bringing a lot of stuff to people uh am yeah. i okay with that <laughs> yeah, yeah it's very yeah. bizarre it's very bizarre yeah. he's like how do i stay humble when i become the thing everybody wants <laughs> yeah 100 percent. yeah again i think it's just just being true to who you are is really mm-hmm. important um you know uh I want to get better to make sure that the coaches that I work with can get better. I want to make become better so the players that I work with get better. I want to get better so my friends and family who, I guess, rely on me in certain situations, like I can provide something to them. Um, but yeah, all of it's relationship-centered, right? And that's who we are as people, and I think that's why it's so important. It is, and it's, and it's that thing that's bigger than self, right? So what is that thing that's bigger than self in this particular realm? Well, you could loosely chalk it up to the sport, right? It could be soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it's, it's the relationships. All relationships are bigger than self. They have to be because they involve two people, not just one. So mm-hmm. I think that's really key too. Um, if you were going to say, give some tips or insights to the listening audience on, you know, they're listening. They're like, man, this guy's just so positive And like, he's so humble. Like how is what people always ask? How do they do that? How do they get there? What do you have to say? Um, I guess from, I would say reflecting on all your experiences going through your life, I think we can't help but being humble through all the things that we've gone through, we've made it through, right? So failures and pain and hurt that, that we've all gone through in life. I think if you reflect back on that and, and what you've learned through those those experiences, I think that's one thing that's really important. Um, and then, I, again, I just think that um, just being focused on other people, like what can you do for the person next to you? Um, you know, and, and when you when you think like that, I think there's no ways that you can be self-centered, right? You try to do things for other people all the time, and and that's what I think this this world needs more of: more grace, more love. Um, you know, for for your neighbors and the people around you, especially those who are in tough situations. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think people find themselves in a tough position, striking a balance where they give so much of themselves that they forget to take care of themselves sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Like that's a different conversation, but I think you're right. There's, there's a lot of self protection going on right now, more so than, you know, it'd be a different problem if we had a whole bunch of people like giving of, of themselves and serving others. Like if that was like too problematic, I would love to have that problem than the other one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it'd be easier exactly. to teach boundaries and be like, Hey, it's okay to like say no sometimes, but that, that doesn't seem to be the case is what seems to be the case is, um, people are so withdrawn and they're so anxious about whatever they, they think they need for themselves that simply turning attention toward others uh, doesn't leave any room for you know sorrow or misery. Uh, that's yeah. one of the techniques we use clinically is we say, you know, somebody's struggling with depression, say, go, go serve others. Go, go, go serve, you know, some food down at the soup kitchen or whatever. You know, you won't have time to be, you know, miserable by yourself. Now, yeah. of course, it's complicated by everybody, you know, being sheltered. Um, yes. Are you guys uh, experiencing the the smoke from the fires? I'm looking out my window right now, and it's you know day number seven thousand of haze. Um, <laughs> how is it in the Bay Area? Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. We've had some apocalyptic days where it's just been red and you seen know, those the pictures. sun is red. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had it also affected our training. We had I think it was almost four weeks where we couldn't be outside because mm-hmm. of the air quality and then we had to go back onto zooms uh, which was really really tough uh, time again uh, but yeah it's a bit sporadic at the moment we'll have two weeks of smoke and then we'll be outside for three weeks and and now with the glass fires in in kind of napa 
again, we've gone through a process of the last week having to be indoors again. So, yeah, it's pretty sporadic and, and really, really tough um, in that sense because, again, again, I look at it from the kids' point of view is they were at home through the COVID lockdown um, for three months and then they're finally out, outside and they look they look forward to these three sessions a week that they get and then, boom, sorry, we're back back online. How do you teach patience and resilience through that? Uh, focus day by day yeah. for them. Like, what can we do today? What's important today? Um, getting them to understand, like, um, you know, what do I get my joy from in this situation? You know, um, and a lot of them, I guess, especially now with this group, I'm referring to specifically as adolescent boys, right? A lot of them will go to the gaming um, mm. kind of consoles, and, and that's how they form a distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess just opening up those conversations and, and engaging with them on like, hey, what can you do today to make sure that you're uh, that you're benefiting from it? That's a bit of a paradoxical messaging too, because all we've heard is you know less screen time, not as much video games. And then it's like, well, sorry, we've taken everything away. So you should probably go get some video game time in because that's the only uh, way you're going to connect with people. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh. super tough, super tough. And then the, the people that they could connect to in there their day-to-day life is also their family, but their family is probably in the same situation where mom and dad are working and they're on Zooms and yep. they're too distracted and they've been with their kids every single day for the last five months and they just want them out, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, a, so it's a challenging time. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you have kids? I don't. It's It's been incredibly hard. And I'm talking to the parents out there right now, if you're listening, like, I feel you, man. With a, with a five-year-old who's in kindergarten in a hybrid learning environment, a wife who's a nurse who works in person at the hospital, but is at home two days, but I'm home all days because we were doing all our zoom stuff through telehealth. We're just now about to return, which is awesome. Um, and so, you know, if you do the math correctly, two of those days are me at home trying to do podcasts and client sessions and supervisions with my kids in the background with the dogs screaming at each other. It's like, Oh, yeah, it's hard. tough so hard and meanwhile yeah. the kids are just like i just want to go visit my cousins in south dakota when is this darn virus going to go away and every prayer at meal time is you know god we pray that you take away this virus it's like yeah dagger yeah. in the heart oh it's it's so yeah. hard to hear kids say that but i i get it i yeah. feel you yeah jake let me let me throw it back on you um sure. you being exposed to people in my shoes and different coaches in the sporting realm what are some things that that you think are most important for for what we do and kind of the the people that we're exposed to uh for me consistency is really important um i i am a big fan of authenticity which is very challenging i understand that like you got to know who you are to be authentic in the first place and and knowing who you are requires a lot of vulnerability you touched on vulnerability earlier vulnerability just means allowing yourself to receive feedback and change your mind that's really what vulnerability is and then through that vulnerability you can build intimacy because that's how conversations happen where people give you feedback it could be a spouse it could be a best friend it could be a coach it could be your boss it could be your subordinates um i also retreat to um what christian conti has been a big influence in my life as a friend mentor i mention him as often as i can because he's he's producing great work um what he has said repeatedly is that you can, and this is very uh, Zen Buddhist, uh, you can get wisdom at any time, anywhere, from anyone or anything, if you're open to it. And that's the, the, the key there is you got to be open to it, and that's the vulnerability. So if you can be vulnerable enough to grow yourself, to know yourself well enough, to be authentic, and then apply that authenticity consistently across all venues... Um, what you do end up doing is modeling with intentionality, good, uh, performance, behavior, attitude, whatnot for the people who are looking up to you. And that would be your, your kids, your athletes, your students, um, your, your employees. So all that for me weaves together to say, try to be as consistent as possible with as much intent as possible. Uh, so that when people see you in different, um, environments whether it's at the grocery store or at church or in the home or in front of your grandmother or at the fraternity you used to go to uh or at work you're going to be the same person um and and i'm not that sounds probably to the listening audience like well you're talking about meeting people where they are how can you do that if you're being you what you do is you acknowledge that the fullness of of a human being is infinite 
uh, we all have infinite capacity. And if we all have the same infinite capacity, what that simply means is that Craig's got capacity that I also have. I may not have recognized it, or I may have recognized something that he hasn't recognized yet. So it's not inauthentic to meet somebody where they are, because what you're doing is you're saying, I believe you can do X, Y, Z. I also believe I am capable of doing X, Y, Z. Maybe one or the other of us has not gotten there yet, but um, I don't have to pretend that I'm not like you. It's not a faking to meet somebody where they are because, you know, given different circumstances, we could absolutely be doing what other people do. So for me, consistency is huge and you want to be authentic and you want to, you want to convey that as often as possible because then what ends up happening is you build credibility. With consistency comes great credibility. Without it, you don't have any credibility, and then nobody listens to you, and then nobody follows you. So uh, that, for me, is the the biggest component there, I think. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of tips and technique-y things like learn, understanding emotional functioning is critical to me. Um, I've, anybody who's listened to this podcast for any length of time knows that I talk a lot about Carol Izzard's work. Uh, and understanding the 10 core emotions that we, we all have to use to adapt to the environment. Um, so if all human, you know, I go to things that all humans presumably would have, like all humans have the same emotional functioning. Uh, we know that from research. So if you could speak that language, you're going to connect with more people. Um, and it takes you again, it takes you out of your own ego. It takes you out of your own zone, uh, such that you're not browbeating people or lecturing them or condescending them. You're just saying, Hey, you know, I know, I know sadness, you know, sadness, sadness is the same among all people. I'll bet you're really in pain right now. And people are like, oh yeah, how do you get me so well? I'm like, well, it's it's common among <laughs> humans. <laughs> so yeah, for yes. for me, it's the consistency and the authenticity. Um, and then if you're really authentic and you're vulnerable, you make a mistake. It, there's nowhere to hide. There's no lying that occurs. There's no there's no you know deviance or or uh, sinister nature. You just go, yep, sorry, I blew it. And people see that too, and they go, wow he's okay with acknowledging that he made a mistake and learning from it. Then you're modeling the behavior that hopefully they also pick up. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question that's, a little bit long. That's awesome. No, that's awesome. Thanks for great tools there. Nobody ever asked the host. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey man, I want to be yeah, mindful I, of the time. We're coming up on an hour. Uh, seems like it flew by in a twinkling. You've been awesome. Uh, we just scheduled this like in the last two days because Safisa was like, Hey, I got this buddy of mine. Uh, you should totally talk to him. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Anybody, anytime, anywhere. Um, <laughs> and it just so happened to fit in this morning, but, uh, I, I want to ask all our guests to leave something with the audience, uh, whether it's a, you know, an exhortation or an invitation or a takeaway or some nugget of wisdom that you want to, you want to share. What would you, what would you leave us with? Yeah, I think the same thread that's been throughout this whole conversation is just like, I think we are better people when we look to to serve other people. Um, and so I think that's most important is like what what opportunities do you have in your life to serve others, um, whether it's your friendships, whether it's your neighbors, whether it's the community you're in, the work environment you're in. I think just this world would be so much of a better place if we just looked to to just, I guess, just be there more for people and, and find ways to, to help them. And I think that's really important. And I think that um, a lot of joy can be stemmed from those situations. And, um, you know, you don't have to be a coach. You don't have to be somebody in your shoes either. Um, you can just be somebody who's present and real and available. And I think that's really important. Yeah, and anybody can do that. Anybody, anywhere. You can be present. And and even if you look around, you're like, well, I live by myself. I'm pretty lonely. I'm a little afraid of COVID. I stay inside. Who can I be present for? Be present with yourself. Yeah. Be there for you. Meet you where you are. I think that's that's great. Well stated. Um, thank you, Craig von Villig. Uh, appreciate your time. Well, how can uh, how can people get a hold of you? How they how they find you? Reach out. Whatever. Yeah, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, I guess, more from a professional setting. Um, so it's like at Craig underscore VW. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to leave my, my email address with you as well if anybody uh, ever wants to, to be in contact. Uh, yeah. yeah. There you are. I see you on Instagram. You're going to have a new follower. There <laughs> you go. Requested. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. Um, especially somebody of your caliber. That's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm... Oh. Uh, but yeah, Jake, thank you for the conversation. I think even just through having conversations like this, whether it's on a podcast or just with 
somebody else who's willing to listen, I think is really important. Having these kind of conversations help, helps me to refine the way that I think about things, helps me to kind of find ways to put them into congruent sentences, I guess, um, for the most part. So I think it's really important. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. I mean, I say repeatedly, this stuff doesn't do any good locked up in my head. So the more people can hear it, better off we'll all be. And that's, that's one way of serving others is, you know, share, don't, don't act like your information or your knowledge is proprietary. Like that doesn't help. Like exactly. Share it out there. So I, uh, if you're, uh, if you're ever over the hill and find yourself in the Reno sparks area, hit me up and we'll, uh, we'll go have a beer. Look forward to it. All right, brother. Thank you very much. On behalf of the Noggin Notes and Zephyr Wellness families, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care.